This time on Science Straight Up. These gatekeepers regulate what gets to and from your DNA. A trip into the nano-universe, where tiny passages known as nuclear pore complexes regulate the flow of molecules into and out of the cells in our bodies. Minuscule gateways with huge implications for life. At a town talk sponsored by Telluride Science, we heard from three eminent nano-researchers. Case Decker, professor of molecular biophysics at Delft University of Technology in the Netherlands and director of the Kavli Institute of Nanoscience at Delft. Michael Rout, professor of biochemistry and biophysics at Rockefeller University in New York. And Anton Zillman, professor of biological physics at the University of Toronto. I'd love to hear a sentence just from each of you. What does this mean to our lives, this research? So if you could just give us the thing that scientists always hate to do, which is, what's the point of this? <laughs> I, mean, I have to start. Case. I'm in science because I'm curious about the world. I want to know what is life, how cells work, and things like that. You, you know, with all these diseases that we have, cancer, Alzheimer, many diseases have their origin in the molecular world, the molecular world, and that's what we study. So I'm not very uh, practically studying towards applications, but we're gathering fundamental knowledge and that has, a, has an impact okay. down the road. That's great. Mike? There's been an absolute explosion of real-world applications for this kind of knowledge, particularly as these gatekeepers regulate what gets to and from your DNA. And two major areas in, in cancers and in, in viral infection, when the virus gets inside your cell or a cancer cell when it starts going wrong, and a real-world application is now here, a drug um, originally called Selenexor, now it's called uh, Expovio, I think. And it actually uh, inhibits one of the big transport pathways that cancers usurp in order to keep themselves growing. So you can, add, you can take this drug and it turns the volume down on that pathway and the cancer that needs this to desperately to be dividing quickly just dies. Whereas your other cells, your normal cells, which don't need it anywhere near as much, uh, they don't die. And this is very, very exciting. One single application of, of this real cornucopia of possibilities. Anton. When we try to understand natural or biological systems and try to understand the basic principles of how they function, if we understand what, well how it works, we can combine parts of it with some other uh, materials and create really little nano devices or nano machines in full sense of the world that can do all kinds of uh, useful stuff, for instance, detecting various molecules, sorting various molecules, which can be used uh, in disease diagnostics, um, and, uh, and that's actually being done now. There, are, there is research and there are even startup companies who are trying to do that kind of thing. Thank you. Judy and I thought it might be helpful to begin with a quick trip down memory lane to our high school biology days when we were first dissecting dead frogs and learned about the cells that make up our bodies. Typically, cells are encased in cell... And correct me if I get anything wrong. <laughs> yeah, here. correct. Typically, it. cells are encased in cell membranes, and they're filled with a jelly-like substance called the cytoplasm. The cytoplasm, your basic goo. That's not really a scientific term, but <laughs> right. it works, right? Goo. Goo. <laughs> Suspended in the cytoplasm, your basic goo, are all sorts of cell components, kind of like the little marshmallows and berries in a jello dessert. Your basic ambrosia salad. Also not scientific, but a, not a bad metaphor. 
Okay, Some ahead. of those components are organelles that help the cell perform various functions. For instance, the mitochondria, little energy-producing factories that keep the cell alive and running. How am I doing so far? Okay. Oh, perfect. All right. Well, well, then, to the nucleus. Yeah. yeah, then there's the cell nucleus. There you go. Gotcha. A sort of information database that contains the cell's well-protected DNA. Surrounding the nucleus is something called the nuclear envelope, a double layer of membranes that decide what passes through. And the envelope is perforated with little holes called nuclear pores, which is what these guys study. The envelope is perforated with those pores, and those pores are what we're focusing on this evening. Now, how tiny is all this stuff? Let's do the basic hitchhiker's guide to the nano-universe. We all know that in the metric system, a meter is a little longer than three feet, right? Well, a nanometer is one billionth of a meter. And how small is that? I'm glad you asked, Judy. The typical <laughs> human hair has a thickness of about 60,000 nanometers. Tonight, we're going to be talking about nuclear pores in cells, little holes with diameters of just 55 to 70 nanometers. So the, those tiny pores are plugged, and correct me if we get this wrong, by proteins that decide when the pores will open and close. They're like tough but tiny bouncers at a very trendy nightclub. That's how I like to think of them. Who gets in? Who doesn't? Sometimes they get it wrong. That's interesting. <laughs> but as we quickly learned in our discussion, these smart little substances don't just act as nightclub bouncers. They also operate a sort of tugboat company hauling desirable substances through the gateways. The smart part is that it can actually select things that are supposed to go through, and they go through lickety-spit real fast, um, way faster than you could blink. So it's just a mesh of some randomly moving spaghetti, and still, by the nature of the properties of that spaghetti strings, it lets some of these actors go through and others not. So I just wanted to add to what Kim Mike and Kay said. So this little sort of devices, if you wish, they are quite unique in that sense that they are, well, they're very small and they're not like any other selecting device that you would familiar with. It doesn't have anything which closes or opens. There is this really quite amorphous and very, very mobile, shapeless chain-like molecules inside which still decide somehow who goes through and who doesn't go through and can do it in, in, in presence of enormous sort of noise and crowding, everybody is pushing there, there are wrong molecules, there are right molecules, and still it be able to do it somehow without me, with minimal input of energy. But there is a second layer of function that it does, that it not only just decides who goes through uh, and who doesn't, but it can concentrate things that need to go through at higher concentrations, for instance, in the nucleus where they need it to do important functions, and without this concentrating ability, they would just dif uh, diffuse away and, uh, and nothing would happen. I mean, I think what's important about how things get across is uh, we've known for a while now that um, it, for all the thousands of, of, of macromolecules, proteins and RNAs and things that have to get across the nuclear pore complex, all of them must be carried by something. And there's a special group of, of proteins called nuclear transport factors. And they recognize little signals on the cargoes that need to get across and then they carry them across, just like a, you know, a tug pulling a barge uh, down a river. They'll carry them through. 
And we know they do that because the transport factors can actually bind in a very special way to these very rapidly moving wiggly little filaments. Uh, and so they can dissolve their way through that and pull the cargo with it. And if, you don't, if you're not attached to one of those things, you, you normally won't go through, certainly not go through very quickly. There's now colleagues in the, in the audience here that actually have developed techniques that you can put a small color molecule on one of those transporters and then look at it in the microscope and see it in the cell moving and see it go to the pore and go into the nucleus, for example. Um. So, and so we have these nanotechnology techniques to yeah, to look at single objects and, and try to puzzle that out. So and what's the next step? Nanobarcodes? Yeah, yeah. You, you, these are already made. You laugh about it. But you can make barcodes from DNA, for example, when, to do uh, things like that. Yeah. When we were talking earlier, you were kind of comparing it to a Lego set but not your normal Lego set. When we were initially uh, working out what these pore complexes, these machines, were made of, we, found, we thought they'd be made of hundreds of different kinds of components. Uh, we actually found that, really, there's only 30 different kinds of proteins, roughly, that make them up. Uh, so we thought, you know, you can imagine if it's Lego, we found there's 30 different kinds of Lego, you know, the eight-spot brick, the, the four-spot brick, you know, the little slopey brick. And there's only... Don't step on them. Don't step on them. And you don't step on them. So we thought, great, you know. But then the problem was we found out, it's, it's like we read the small print on, on the box, was, yes, but there are 552 copies of that that you need to put together somehow to, to, uh, to make this thing. And it's even worse than that because they're not actually inflexible, solid little bricks. They're, they're each of the components is itself a kind of little nano machine with, with very discrete little functions. Um, and, and I certainly don't want to throw uh, the, the, the idea of the gatekeeper across, uh, off, but the nuclear pore complex does even more than transport. It also, um, uh, you, you may have heard that the DNA in your nucleus makes messenger RNA, it makes RNA, which takes the messages, the instructions out from the nucleus, and it, that goes out through the nuclear pore complex into the cytoplasm, and then that strip of RNA is read into a protein. Um, and um, not only does that RNA get transported through, there's a whole pile of processes that check that the RNA is okay, that assemble and package it into special kinds of packages. Different RNAs are packaged up differently, and that happens at the nuclear pore complex, and we really don't understand. There's a lot of the players are well understood, and many of the people in this conference were instrumental in, in finding them. Uh, and we're piecing it together, but there's still a lot to understand. And finally, the nuclear pore complex directly regulates DNA in three known different ways. Um, again, a number of the, the players are known, but really the, the fundamentals of how it does that, that, those are really the least understood. It is a Lego. There are sort of lots of little pieces which are put together um, in a three complex three-dimensional structure. And how that happens, that's actually we don't know. So it's made to give, be giving a metaphor. It's like literally like taking a 50 different Lego pieces, each present in 100 copies, put them in the box, shake the box, 
and suddenly getting a model of an uh, aircraft carrier or something like that. I, I and we it. really don't know how it works. We know, it, we know that that's part of the functions of each of these parts. One of their function is to know how to join together to all the other ones and self-assemble into this. And the, the final structure, uh, we, we have um, um, uh, used the analogy of a suspension bridge. It's, it's not quite Lego. It's made of very strong struts and pieces, but those pieces are hinged off each other so that it can flex and bend. And then all of them are connected together by a huge number of these flexible connector cables that, like a suspension bridge, allow it to flex and bend. And we think in part that is just like a suspension bridge to, to deal with the kind of pressures. A suspension bridge has to deal with the, the waves, the wind, the tides, all this, and sway and bend but not break. In a cell, things are constantly moving around and opening, and we, we know from some really uh, uh, nice work from several groups that the, the nuclear pore can actually bend and dilate and constrict um, and, and without breaking. Uh, and it seems those are some of the principles, but again, the details of how it does that are still far from understood. And I, I think that's so fascinating because you are working on a frontier. I mean, this is a relatively new area of research to be able to, as you say, drill down into tiny little drills, I mean, anyway, uh, <laughs> into the nuclear pore and, and study it. Um, how new is this? I mean, in the last 20 years, maybe? Just... Nanotechnology techniques are sort of 20 years old or something. Yeah. We can really start building this from the bottom up. Uh, yeah, the, the, the I mean, we started. Yeah, so. we found the first components uh, very end of the 80s, and, and there was a flurry in the 90s of That's identifying right. the parts. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you know, there was a lot of logic. You first, just like putting a kit together or building a suspension bridge, you, you need to have the parts first. So we had the parts list. And then from there, we're, we're trying to work out how it's put together. But what's the function of each part, right? I mean, that's very, still many questions there. Yeah. yeah. One fascinating thing, we were talking before this session about you're having trouble coming up with names for all these little components and stuff. <laughs> So that's Mike's business. You, you, were, yeah, that was yeah, a, you were part of responsible. Well, there, what right? we were talking about in that, in that sense was describing actually, um, one of them was because when these were being discovered, uh, lots of people were working on it at once, all these parts. And so they'd give different names to the, the same parts because they were working yeah. you know, independently. And so the, the, the nomenclature is a bit of a mishmash. And, and sort I, I of think, like the way IKEA names furniture. Yeah, well, they're much more <laughs> systematic than we were, I'm afraid. Um, and, and, and we now, well, there are some of us who, who, who do regret um, uh, I'm one of them that we could have used a better system. It'd be kind of fun to come up with some names like Bob and <laughs> yep. Patty. I mean, okay. the, old, uh, the, the, the old proverb of the five blindfolded wise men and they were presented with an, uh, an elephant and they couldn't see it. Oh, yeah. Right. And, you know, one of them's got the tail and, yeah. and thinks it's a brush. One of them has the trunk and thinks it's a snake and so on and so forth. You know, we're, we're still coming in and, and getting different kinds of views of how this thing behaves. So we kind of need a new language, but also what this conference is about is, is trying to take the blindfolds off, put everything together, and, and synthesize. I, I mean, is that fair? I think... Yeah, yeah. We, we're, trying to, I mean, we, we're trying to leave those particularities of those models behind to try to come to a more consensus model. But even then, we, I say that, and then at dinner, I say, oh, it's actually really a face condensate. And then Anders says, no, 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 <laughs> definitely not a face condensate. We don't condensate. use these words So here. I'm not we sure that we, we're, we're there yet already. Uh, 
you guys from the world of physics, what do you think Sir Isaac Newton would think of this nano-universe? Wow. He would be amazed, right? He would yeah. be amazed. He was uh, uh, living just after Antony van Leeuwenhoek discovered the first microorganisms and so. Actually, I just read a book a couple of weeks ago. Newton even wrote a letter to Antony van Leeuwenhoek from Delft to thank him for his discoveries and all. So he knew about that. He started to see that. But that was micrometer scale, small, small animals that you could see through a microscope. Now we really discovered a new cosmos at, at the nanoscale. Yeah, I mean, you would be amazed, right? But the, the physics, in principle, is not a new class. Like quantum physics or relativity yeah. is going beyond classical mechanics. Yeah. And many of these phenomena are, seem miraculous, and we're still puzzling out this mechanism. But in the end, it's classical physics. Anton, so, you brought up something before, and I just want to follow up on it. And it's also my way to plug Telluride Science. Always look for a way. but. They bring together here every summer. You would not normally get together at a convention. And tell, talk a little bit about what it's like to have all of you come together. You were arguing over dinner. I mean, you know, and I couldn't keep up. But it was clear that some things you agree on, some things you're not. Are things born out of this gathering? Coming together of like many different disciplines. We have chemists in our conference, cell, bi cell biologists. We have nanoscientists. We have physicists. Uh, we have computational people. All this coming together, that's very new. That's maybe 15 years old. And uh, yes, absolutely, that's the whole purpose of this conference, to bring everybody together, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's through this, you know, people coming together and doing this that we've, we've learned so much. I, I, I think it's worth saying, because we've, we've said there's a great deal we don't understand. Uh, at the beginning of the 1980s, it wasn't even known for sure whether this was even a gate. They, they knew there was this thing, these holes, but it wasn't sure that it was a gate. We've come from there into the 1990s. By then we knew, yes, it was definitely a gate, that it was, it was this selective gatekeeper. Then we got all the parts, and this is, you know, hundreds of groups around the world doing this work, got all the parts and starting to put them together. Now we have a, a really good view of the overall uh, static architecture of this enormous and complicated machine. We know not only what it's made of, but how all the parts go together. And we're, we're still trying to breathe life into that picture, um, is to understand how it, it acts dynamically. But still, there's a great deal we do understand about even that. We know how things, when they get to one side, stay on one side, why they go in one direction, not the other. And the fact that we really get now to the molecular scale makes things tractable and quantitative yeah. and things like that. Can you someday help the nanopores do a better job of keeping out the bad guys and therefore... Yes, well, absolutely. I think the current ones do a pretty decent job, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. But every <laughs> once in a while something gets through. Yeah, yeah. When it goes wrong, DNA, they right? try to... You yeah. have things like cancers as a result. Yeah, yeah sure. Absolutely. Also, we were talking earlier about the idea of a eureka moment uh, when scientists come up with something new uh, and... I loved your quote from Isaac Asimov. You want to repeat it? Just the, the yeah, really if I could remember it. It's like, uh, you know, uh, most, science, so most scientific discoveries uh, were not so much uh, shouting Eureka as muttering, um, that's funny, why did it do that? Um, you know. <laughs> do you have those moments here? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, the, uh, even today in discussions, people were, were going back and forth trying to figure out why, why is it 
doing that. Yeah, like, you know, yeah. uh, it wasn't people declaiming it's doing this and not that and yelling at each other. It's like, yeah, this is weird and trying to work out why when you look at it, when one person looks at it one way, it seems to go in one direction. Yeah. You look at it slightly different way, it goes another. And that's giving you clues as, as to, you know, uh, how this thing is really behave, are behaving and how they can change their behaviors. And by just discussing and putting it together and then discussing maybe designing new experiments to probe those uh, uh, differences that are being seen, uh, that's how it's been moving forward. And that is the history of work totally. on the Totally. I mean, I, I mean, and maybe it also is a good illustration of the sort of the high school picture that you, you, you phrase a hypothesis and then you go out, do the experiment, and then it's right or wrong. That, that, yes, that's part of it, but it's so much more. It's a very dynamic, it's also teamwork, it's discussions yeah. at the whiteboards, sketching ideas and crossing them away and all that. I mean, uh, 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 one uh, quite well-known scientist, uh, Arnie Levine, said science is a blue-collar occupation, and that's very, very true. In the end, you, you, you do experiments, either in the computer or, you know, on the bench, and, you know, I, I've... I, I've actually been taken to the ER several times, and I, I have scars on my hand to prove it. You know that things do go wrong. <laughs> they go wrong. That could be just because I'm a terrible experimenter. But um, uh, you know, but uh, it, it, it is a hands-on thing in many many cases. Uh, but but then the computational analysis nowadays, which is really a, a more recent thing, has, has proven to be absolutely vital. Yeah, well, my, my, things, my, my hand gets very, very tired of writing all the formulas. <laughs> exactly, yes, yes, it's exhausting. Everyone has exactly. their injuries. Yeah. You've been taken to the ER for exhaustion. <laughs> exactly. yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the Cobble things total. that endears you guys to me is that you, you mentioned you get green crap all over your lab coats. Well, well I do, yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's green goo, what is that? Uh, well, I, I'm, I'm working on some plant stuff, and we, we mince the plants up to get at these nuclear pore complexes, and obviously they're very, very green, and we we mince a lot of them, and you just kind of every so often you, you're trying to mince it, and it sprays out, and you know. So I had this lovely, beautiful, clean, you know. I was very proud because I was starting to do bench experiments again after doing, a, you know, running a lab, doing a lot of administration. So I finally started doing so again. Lovely, clean, new, you know, white lab coat, and it didn't take very long because it was a green and white lab coat. Uh, so now I wear a very dark blue lab coat because you can't see the stains there. What's the most surprising thing about nuclear pores that you've each? Encountered. Wow, that selectivity, that the gatekeeping effect, that I, f I find it astonishing that it does it without an active motor function. Uh, in the last year, we, uh, the, I mean, the, that's so nice about science. I mean, it keeps being surprising. I mean, there was discovered that it could actually go larger or smaller depending on conditions and all that. There's, so that, that reverses the idea that it's a static structure and that's it or something. So, yeah, there's lots of surprises every year. Yeah, I was surprised. I've been recently surprised that they that there's not just even in a single cell in a single nucleus there's just not one kind of nuclear pore there's actually several different kinds and in other words but you know it's like you then turn that lego box around to the other side and say oh actually you can build three kits out of this not one and they look kind of like each other but they have big differences and we absolutely don't know why they're doing that so that's a surprise so anybody have a a question I'm a stage four cancer survivor. No chemo, oh, no blah, 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 yeah. modern miracle. 
Yep. So the name of that drug, in case I go through another round, I'm not Oh, sure. well, it's called... Uh, <laughs> it, it works against certain kinds of cancers, not all cancers. This is always the problem with cancer. I was a guinea it's pig. Yeah. It's called, cancer. I think, Expovio, isn't it? X, X-P-O-V-I-O, I believe. And you're not getting paid by that company? Right? I have nothing to do with them. No, no, no. Thanks for a great discussion. So I think you used the word complex more than any other word during the discussion. Why do we need this complexity of the nuclear membrane envelope and a nuclear pore complex? Why is it so important? Life is doing very well without it. Yeah, I, th- I think that relates to the fact that you have compartmentalization. So you basically don't have one big goo, but more, uh, more specialized areas in the cells. In a sense, the uh, process of life is one of separating the living processes from the environment. It happened two billion years ago. We don't know all the pressures that caused that sudden explosion in complexity that led to the complex life While we see the now. bacteria moved on as well, in parallel, right? Yes. Yeah. Well, and that's the other thing, of course. They, yeah. they, they themselves adapted to this, these new kids on the block. Well, first, there is no explanation, I think, why in the process of evolution organisms seem to become more and more complex. But one of the sort of, I think, common explanation is that the more complex organisms, the more it can adapt to changing environment. Yeah. Uh, and if you have a simple thing, I, I agree, okay. but the bacteria are pretty mm. good at that too. But but bacteria adapt genetically, so in order, well, so in order, if you have a simple organism, level. bacteria can mutate pretty easily. They, you know, and their mutation rate way higher than ours. Sure. And so they can adapt to the new environments, but it's going to be a different type of bacteria. We can adapt to the same environment, staying the same species. So that's one of the... Why is it good for that? I don't know. You, you've got powerful electron microscopes that you use to look at the nano world. You, you can use contrast dyes to make it more visible. You've got computers to analyze all this stuff. Are there tools that haven't been invented yet that you have on your wish list? Sure. Good question, George. <laughs> In the ideal world, we would like to have a microscope that can measure really at the atomic scale every atom and then and follow the motion of yeah. that every atom in time. Do you owe oh, one more question? Okay, we have time barely for one more. <laughs> okay, back, back to how the thing works. So we have this little tunnel. And you told us that some kinds of molecules, like RNA, can go one yeah. way through, and other kinds of molecules can only go the other way through. How do you think that works, that you can get two species of molecules, one going one way, one going the other way, through the same structure? If you are something that wants to come in, when you come in and touch that protein, it, something happens. It's a bit complex to go through. But then you get taken off that transport thing. Remember the, the, the little tug? that can take things back and forth, you get pulled off that tug, and now you can't get back. So you just stay on one side. Uh, And stuff going out, same idea. You go out, you're getting tugged across, but as soon as you see that little guy that's only in the cytoplasm, that causes the carrier, the little transporter, to to kick off its cargo, dump the cargo, and now that cargo doesn't, it can't attach to a transporter, so it can't go back again. Our thanks to Case Decker, distinguished university professor at Delft University of Technology in the Netherlands, Anton Zillman, professor of biological physics at the University of Toronto, and Michael Rout, professor of biochemistry and biophysics 
at Rockefeller University. Let's give them a hand. All my experiments went wrong. Before we leave you, we caught a couple of our scientists jamming prior to our discussion. Case Decker on guitar, Michael Rout on vocal, the nuclear poor blues. And all my nuclear pores had just gone. And that's it. I can't think of any other rhymes, I'm afraid. Sorry about that. That's it for this edition of Science Straight Up, produced in conjunction with Telluride Science. Our program was recorded before a live audience at the Transfer Warehouse in Telluride with sound run by Vicki Phelps of Dragonfire Productions. Mark Kozak is executive director of Telluride Science. Cindy Fusting is executive manager. Annie Carlson runs donor relations. And Sarah Friedberg is lodging and operations manager. For more information and to hear all our podcasts, go to telluridescience.org. I'm Judy Muller. And I'm George Lewis, inviting you to join us next time on Science Straight Up.